Hello, and today I'm in Nottingham to meet the artist, curator, and the director of Backlit Gallery, Matthew Chesney. Hello, Matthew. Hello. Welcome to my podcast, and uh, thank you for joining me for this conversation. It's a pleasure. Thank you for inviting me. Maybe you could begin by saying a little bit about Backlit and, and how it came to be, because you, you're you the founder, aren't you? It's, I am. It's your baby. Still here. Fantastic. <laughs> I suppose really what I have to probably mention at the beginning is in the mid-2000s, there was this real history of an amazing art scene in the city, which was abundant because of the, the Midland Group and this amazing collective of artists that were bringing some of the world's biggest artists to Nottingham. So there's no, it's no accident that Nottingham is so culturally vibrant. So... When I was at university, 2005 to 2008, people seemed to graduate and set up artist studios. And it was like, wow, you know, it's going to be our turn soon. You know, there's a real energy. So in 2008, it was like, you know, it's our time. What are we going to do? So what we decided to do was to actually really think about supporting our artists. There was 25 graduates looking for space with us in our, in our year. So everything was like, I suppose, by committee. But there was five directors, including myself, but we always thought about the needs of our artists and we've always mixed artists at different points in their careers. So in those early years, we'd have people like Jonathan Baldock, 2009, Mark Titchener, 2009, Rachel McLean, 2000, I think, 10, 11. And these are people who were graduating themselves and doing really, really amazing stuff. I mean, Mark Titchener isn't not that. He actually had been in a, entered for a Turner Prize. But we were still mixing artists that were graduating from masters or perhaps people that were doing great things in London, bringing them up. We had no budgets, no funding. It was just literally, you can stay on my couch, we'll get you some beers and do what you want. But hang on a second. So we are sitting in the office space in this lovely old mill building. How did you get the mill? Here. Yeah, how did you get hold of this oh, place? Do you really want to know? Oh, oh. <laughs> okay, so I'm saying that because, 2000. so let's go forward, 2008 to 2011, we were voluntary led, so there was no funding. We tried to get Arts Council funding, couldn't get anything. Um, there was holes in the ceilings. It was a rough building. The council came one day and said, this building's not that safe. Can we look at your health and safety and see how we can improve it? Then unfortunately, about a week later, they just changed the locks without any notice. You know, thankfully no one was locked inside, but people had their belongings inside. And that was a real catalyst. That could have been the end of Backlit. That could have been the time when most of the original directors had left. It was me and somebody else left over. And we'd just got somebody, some new people in post. And we were still voluntary. So that was the point I thought, this is the crossroads where you say, do you know what, Matt? That's enough now. You had some fun. You met some great artists. Go on to something else. But I was adamant that that was actually not, that it was actually the beginning of something else. So then we moved here in 2011, and this was with support from the City Council to find a safer building. And then from here, we've just built and grown and developed. So what was your motivation to continue? Was it just sheer bloody-mindedness or kind of altruism? And what about your own practice in all of this? Because it takes up a lot of time and effort, doesn't it? Yeah, so I think it's a mixture of all three. I'm definitely somewhat of a tenacious character. I think also, fundamentally, it was a responsibility. There was like... 30 artists that had nowhere to work so I felt like you know they could have found spaces elsewhere in the city but Backlit's like a family in a way that there's a real sense of care 
and a lot of the work we do is for these people so to me it was led by a sense of responsibility and also this idea of you know professionalization I mean my practice early years of Backclear I was showing work in um lots of work in Germany and I was working with uh, another one of the directors called Ashley Gallant who's now a trustee actually and we were going to Germany and working on kind of sculpture installations so you know that was always nice because then we'd meet people and say hey do you want to come to Nottingham so that that was really clear to me early days is like perhaps that there was this idea of sharing and inviting and hosting people from different countries different cities and opening that network especially those early years it was fundamental I probably am a little bit more critical of that now, actually, than I was then. In what way? Or... Well, the art scene often is very much built on relationships and connections and friendships, but it's having that balance between it not being about that. And I think those early years, I don't think it was about that, but I think it was expanding a network and learning from each other. But equally, there's a balance, isn't there? So I think that at the early years, we bring people back to, to Nottingham, and then I suppose I was more interested in becoming a curator because we'd all curated by committee and some people definitely led and then they'd gone on and moved to other things. So I think towards that 2011 mark of me moving to this building, I was thinking, I've got a whole curatorial practice I want to define here and I have ideas that I want to deliver, implement, collaborate with. So to me, it was also finding my curatorial voice, I think, was also a leading factor. And I love the role between curatorial and an artist and those practices and how they interact, the negotiations that take place as a curator, but fundamentally knowing what artists need. How are your kind of admin skills and do you have naturally have a good sense of the funding landscape? It's quite, a, a, you know, as an art to be able to get something like this off the ground and then keep it going. Mm. Well, in terms of fundraising, I clearly had no clue up until 2011-12. And the point in time that that shifted was when I kind of employed a part-time development director. And that was somebody who was working in the cultural sector in Nottingham. And it was a very odd time because we, I didn't really have the money to pay them probably what they had hoped for. So I was kind of having to do favours and things and I suppose then I understood the language I understood like things more so like management accounts or how you basically make a bid and how you present an offer for funding to somebody and I do think it ties into I suppose first you've got to have this idea but it does tie into storytelling perhaps and in the sense of not necessarily being fiction but in the same way you might want to tell a certain story or concept through a curatorial vision I always feel like writing is such a fundamental part of the arts, whether it's writing about your own practice, if you want to write about other people's practice in terms of arts criticism, or you want to work as a curator and you've got to write about people's uh, artworks and careers to date. Like That's a really big part of my job, my role. And I think that's something that was definitely geared on the course at Nottingham Trent University was critical thinking. In terms of fundraising and number crunching and accountancy and, you know, just even knowing funding deadlines and, you know, how to re develop relationships, that's something I just learnt on the job. I'm definitely, I always say to people, I'm an artist who became a curator, became a director, and I think it's definitely moved towards something perhaps more operational at times. But I still, that creativity is why I started doing it. You can never really forget that otherwise you kind of lose the fun you lose the meaning perhaps if it's purely 
operational. So that's interesting that you're obviously good at, as as you say, creating a story, but or a narrative maybe of of, of it. you've got a vision, you've got a sense of direction, and you 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 can infuse and and share that and get people on board for that. So that's brilliant. Mm. And how does that then? You were also saying that you became interested and found that your interest in curation became more and more to the surface. Do you want to say a little bit about that and and mm. why and how that curation element became important to you? Yeah, I don't know if it was also, it felt perhaps quite trendy. I'm saying that, I just felt like in 2008, 9, 10, there was a real surge, it felt like, of artist curators where... There was. Yeah. There was. And really, honestly, I think I was also interested in working with people that perhaps illustrated my own interests in a much more interesting way. So what were your interests that you wanted to explore and and almost use other artists to help you explore? Well, my background was theatre. So when I've looked at installations or exhibitions, I've always perhaps seen them as mini theatre experiences. And by that, I mean, you know, there's Ilya Kabakov, this idea of total illusion, you know, there's all these kind of concepts between perhaps more of a passive experience of theatre and perhaps a more active experience of exhibitions but to me I would approach people I felt were bringing a sense of movement of spatial awareness of performance so yeah that I would look at paintings as backdrops I would look at sculptures as people (laughs) and I think it was this idea of creating an environment or creating nuances or creating a kind of story that's always been an interest to me so people like Jonathan Baldock I mean they actually I remember having conversations with Jonathan Baldock about the triadic ballet and, you know, Oscar Schlemmer, you know, and they were things that now seem really fitting. And I know Jonathan's done amazing performance pieces, but at the time, his sculptures were, to me, incredibly theatrical. I mean, Rachel McLean's work, to me, was very narrative-driven and it was saturated. And it was also quite irreverent back then. She was kind of taking clips from Friends and Lady Gaga and mixing it all together. So to me, I quite liked that kind of YouTuber feel that she had. But, you know, her dressing up and making costumes, again, incredibly theatrical. So, to me, the people that I thought were doing more interesting things were perhaps looking at performance within contemporary art. And they were definitely my interest. And I think, yeah, I'm trying to think about my my early pieces of work were performance and installation. So, I seem to feel very comfortable in those areas. And perhaps spanning out from that, it became more about, uh, I think maybe it became more more ambitious. It became about like giving people also creative freedom. And that's really important for people that are really established. It's not just about selling your work with a commercial gallery. Often it is about working with a DIY space just to have some freedom and to make perhaps even a few mistakes if you want to. Mark Titchener, for example, he was part known at the time for these beautiful large-scale prints and sculptures. I mean, he made paintings at Backlight. I did an electronic performance with him and it was like, for him, it was a chance to kind of really go back to being more informal, perhaps, or more carefree and not so self-aware of their work. So I've also invited people to do that because I feel like you can get the best out of them doing that. So that's also an approach. Well, it sounds like there's a kind of generosity to your approach to curation and, and allowing people a little, the freedom to, to do things. Uh, you know, there is a, an, element, an element of generosity because I do think that can bring out the best in people. But I've also been called a dictator, I have, by certain people because everyone's got different needs. I mean, I think more over the years, I got more and more bothered what people think. I'm not quite sure I'm at now with that. But I definitely wanted to impress perhaps 
I've always been quite proud that Nottingham does what it wants and it doesn't seek approval. But I'd be lying if I said I hadn't seeked approval from, you know, the the national art scene and the national art, international art world. But I don't know if COVID's kind of given me a different perspective. I'm not saying I don't want to work internationally because I do. I think now it's more important than ever. But equally, I think perhaps the values, my values have somewhat shifted. I don't feel as though perhaps I... I feel like I've done that. You know, I've really worked, we've really worked with some of the best artists in the world. And it's there's nothing better than working with people and then going to a huge museum in New York and be like, oh, we're showing them, huh, you know. But equally, like, when you come back, it's like, what is the meaning to people in our studios? What's the meaning to people in the local area? Because as a funded organisation now, it's a responsibility of ours to really kind of reflect what's happening. Well, I was going to ask you about that, because in terms of your your vision and your narration as it were of your ideas for what you would like to do to what extent they're constrained or shaped by the people who are funding you and and their agendas and to what extent you're given free reign and to what extent you have to fulfill remits of things like social inclusion and community and participation and so on Mm. it's interesting because remember years ago we were talking about working with community groups and somebody a curator based in based in the midlands had said do you want to do that or is it because of the funding? And we were like, we want to do it. We haven't got funding for it yet. I think there's definitely, there's this element of, you know, being a national portfolio organisation with the Arts Council, there's huge amounts of focus on inclusion and relevance and and now even more so quality and, and diversity. And that that's always been a factor of the funding. You know, especially in light of the Black Lives Matter movement, we've spent the last year really unpicking and looking at the organisation and um, we've done some huge pieces of work on that because I'm even perhaps more aware perhaps of my privilege and my white bias. I mean, I'm I'm a LGBTQ plus person who works in the arts and there's things that I have issues with, but there's much bigger issues that are happening, especially in regards to the lack of representation. So that's something that I think as a placemaker, as someone who has some element of control or power, if you like, in this organisation, I again feel a responsibility to do something and this is not like um i'm also mindful it sounds like white savior complex but it's really just this idea of like if you have support and investment and funds it's how that gets distributed that really is the fundamental thing and i think you know a lot of our work i wouldn't say we do stuff now just for funders we definitely used to because we used to get funded project to project to project when we became a national portfolio organization that gave us a level of consistency and wider strategy that was just impossible before because you get funding for a project you'd employ people you deliver that work you do an evaluation and you keep going and now that's changed especially in terms of learning and community projects we worked with tanya Brigera as part of the tate exchange program in 2019 and they said like you know once you do these kind of community projects you should never stop working with these people you have to keep working with them it's like a lifelong commitment and I think there is this reactive nature to spaces like Backlit where you, you have to be careful, you don't pick things up and drop them, you've got to keep things moving. So now we have to be strategic because if we take on certain projects, we're wanting to do them long term, we're wanting to keep those relationships moving or at least open the doors to people that they're always welcome to come back. And that is the case. So I, I think in terms of funding, there are some things we have to be mindful of strategically, but you know, as a charity, a lot of our workers benefit to the public and to, to artists and young people and the local community. So that's the core. If you have your objectives in the right place, then hopefully you can't really go wrong. I think it's a really 
interesting dynamic because on the one hand, it seems right and, and laudable to be doing community work and participatory work and addressing all of these issues that you say. I'm thinking about the, that dynamic that's in place and it has, whether it's always been the artist's role to do those things. I'm thinking back 50s, 60s, 70s, abstract impressionists where you, uh, where you had more like the kind of the heroic artist as the individual figure carving out this new vision for the world. And that was a very different view of the role of the artist, whereas now it seems bundled up in the role of the artist to have that participatory element. But that's no. not always been the case. No. I think we've also championed social engaged practice because we're in a really interesting part of Nottingham. Like we've got St. Anne's to the left and we've got Stenton to the right. Stenton is incredibly diverse. And as is St. Anne's, uh, a lot of artists live there. It's affordable housing. St. Anne's is a real sense of community. I had a really bad reputation for, for gun crime, uh, which has improved. But, you know, St. Anne's is a... I think one of the best areas for community in Nottingham. You know, St. Anne's is economically deprived, as they say, but, you know, it's got it's wealthy in many other ways. There's a real amazing initiatives happening, wonderful leaders of community groups. So because we're kind of on the cusp of these very interesting areas, we don't want to just be this austere old factory full of awkward artists that are not letting people in because I think for us, we know that if we are going to really mean something in this local area... Or even nationally, we've just got to have the people behind us. Say something happened with this building, you kind of want people in the community to come and rally behind you and say, no, we, we need this space for our mental health or we need it to feel connected and not to feel isolated. So as well as the artistic quality, I think they're the things that actually show the power of art as a tool, as a democratic tool to actually be shared for people to have conversations, to have difficult conversations actually, to feel comfortable, to express themselves. Um, it's all very emotional. The The emotional impact that art can have is quite fundamental to me. I think I've realised more over the last year how emotional our organisation is. I'm not saying people are crying every day and it's all like people screaming, but what I'm saying is that a lot of the connections we have with people are emotional connections we're not a supply chain company we are people that want to have connections with people and i think especially during the pandemic that's something that we missed and we knew we'd have to reintroduce they did still happen virtually but um that's when you know you can perhaps try and think of the world in a different way i mean that to me is what art art to me is um is is this way of looking at the world it's this kind of reflecting what contemporary life is like so in my my opinion if you're not really kind of connecting to those different thoughts and feelings or reflecting the area around you then it kind of just feels somewhat redundant it feels too singular it feels too tunnel vision and this is something I'm also worried about because the arts education at the moment is really only for privileged people with money and then what you're getting is you're getting an ecology where there's a very singular view of the world and that's really boring for me as a curator and someone who leads artist studios, you know, with, with my team, you want to have different voices. You want to have people looking at different things so they can educate you and make you think differently of the world. And that's something that I've always found is really exciting about art, is it can always challenge my, my thinking. That's a lovely way of talking about art and thinking about the possibilities for art, which is what I'm interested in in this podcast. And that's absolutely, it seems like this kind of melting pot or this arena, this space in which ideas can flow and interchange and different groups can come together and the very fact that it's kind of unconstrained in many ways it doesn't it seems formless or it doesn't have direct boundaries or it can be so many different things 
is actually its strength because it enables all of these different things to, to happen. Mm-hmm. And that feels really a positive way of thinking about things like community engagement and so on. It's, it's not simply ticking a box or, or something that you've got to do as part of the, the deal for the funding, but it's, it's fundamental to how art exchanges opinions, really. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't want to just educate people. I want them to educate me. So when I'm curating a show, if I don't know much about it, I have to get professionals in or people that have those experiences, not just to educate me, but to educate others. And if I do understand, then I also equally want people to understand things that I know about that are my experiences. And I think they're the things that I know I've seen people's lives. I've seen people's faces drop. I've seen people's lives change. And you just think, oh, can it do that? Yeah, I've seen it. I've seen people come in and go, I had no idea that was what's happening. I had no idea this person felt like that. I had no idea that something so simple or dumb could have this effect on me or a, a painting could move you in a certain way. Certain way. So, um, yeah, I think it just, it, I know that sounds really kind of perhaps twee or overly sincere, but yeah, there is something about the ways in which people also do need, they do need to have access to these things to, to have better lives. They just do. I've seen it. And I've experienced it myself, which is what spurs me on, especially like moments where I'm just exhausted. You know, Backlit is a quite a big organisation now. And I think back to 13 years ago, it is daunting how much has happened. Um, and there is more work to do. There's loads of work to do, just even in Nottingham and even within the organisation. They're the things that pull me forward, that made me go, actually, no, come on, there's more to do here. There's always something else to do. Well... Maybe we can continue some of these conversations after a quick cup of coffee? Yeah. Great. (laughs) Right, so we are back after cup of coffee for me and cup of tea for you yeah fantastic so i wanted to talk to you a little bit about your um show that's coming up share bears Mm. because you gave me a little sneak preview and it's opening next week um which by the time this goes out may have been and passed unfortunately but it's your first exhibition after the lockdown and covid how's it all been and how's it going so in terms of the gallery, we've all been so excited about having an exhibition on again. We've so missed the the excitement and the liveliness and activating these spaces. You know, literally, I felt like the um, the old lady in Titanic, you know, and she's like, there was the china on the wall. <laughs> like the smell of the paint, people drilling holes, you know, all that stuff I've missed. People putting their work up and being like, letting go. It's been amazing. Finding connections with the work is incredible. I've really, really enjoyed that. We've also had new lighting um, and heating installed, so no one's got to appreciate that, which that happened just before the lockdown. So I'm happy that the space has been upgraded. The challenges have been the fact there's 28 artists who have had a whole year of isolation and pent up creativity. So I can see this means a lot more to people than it would have done a year ago because it's it's coming back into the public realm again and it's also been a collaborative process so we've taken online meetings which were these share bear sessions there were these online meetings every week to talk about 
Life in lockdown and works in progress and new ideas and life experiences and now that's manifesting into the physical. So interestingly, that's the challenge for me is this hybrid of living in the online world still but also being in the physical and as the director of an organisation and think about public programming you're almost trying to say to people don't worry it's okay come back there's nothing to see here you know this kind of thing and almost like Glinda in, in ours I feel like I'm coming out into like a whole different world now and you know there's been benefits of lockdown which I'm still gonna have to think about and process and take forward but at the moment it's trying to just think around what that physical feels like and that's been challenging because I don't think everyone has the answers no one has the answers we don't know what's around the corner so for now we're just trying to see what happens to put one front foot in front of the other and that's been quite challenging, I think. Well, my, my sense of the little preview as we were wandering around was very much that it was, as you say, you've got more people than you normally would showing. There's a sense that you, you just need to do something, put something there, just dip the toe back in the water. I love the fact that your mum is showing some work as well. And my well. dad, and, and my brother, yeah. Yeah, it's more that sense of just, let's just do something. Yeah. We, can, we can work out what it is and where we go after. But the first step is just to be doing something again and then and then regroup after that I think maybe definitely I think I curatorially or even like perhaps in my leadership feel less self-aware and I don't know if that's because I was allowed time to reflect and think about who I am what I want what I have to do over the last year this is also an opportunity for the artists to just work together and show something and perhaps celebrate that we kind of got through that last year and we learnt more about each other. And I think having these sessions online met, meant that people could be more open, actually. People disclosed some really incredible things. I got to know and understand people I thought I knew on a much deeper level. And I think the Share Bears project hopefully will show some really interesting insights into lockdown and isolation, process and family and identity. So it very much feels like a celebration of the fact that we came together. And, and when and I've learned, and I knew this anyway, the core of what we do has always been about supporting our artists, right? So when everything was kind of shut down last year, uh, we just focused our attention on our artists. We didn't think about pumping digital content or more things for people to consume. We took it as a chance to think around what we're doing and why. And I think we knew that the people that are on zero hour contracts or were laid off or lost jobs in the arts, you know, they're the people that we had to make sure were okay and we had to prioritise. So Share Bears is, it's, it's a playful take. I mean, our, uh, our artist development coordinator, Joey Holder, she initiated the sessions last year. So it's playful, it's irreverent, and it, you know, it is what it is. It's just like Share Bears was sharing. <laughs> and it was playful, it was really fun. It was also moving, it was also difficult moments, you know, but I think more people turned up online than perhaps would have done if there were physical sessions. So that's something to think about. And look, I also think, you know, coming back into this communal setting of a group show is also challenging for people who have been in isolation for a year. There's probably someone or subconscious trauma, perhaps, for people that we're all going to make sense of later, uh, that at times is manifested through the making of work and people questioning the making of work. And perhaps being in a group setting is really far much more odd than it would have been a year ago. It is very strange, isn't it? Yeah. That reintegration and, and that re-emergence, that tentative 
feeling your way back into society and back into uh, a sh shared spaces and so on is, is very strange. Mm. But it sounds very much as though you've been getting back to basics or getting to the essentials in, in everything and in art and life. And that's that's as it should be that, you know, when push comes to shove, you've you've refocused and regrouped around the core strengths. And that's that's fantastic. Well, without them, we, we're not really who we are. I think that's the thing is also the people that are in Backlit. They're the people that actually influence our programme. They have their own projects they put on. I think in terms of the last year, you know, Suzanne, my deputy director, she's spent loads of time fundraising and getting funding for people to have projects and we've always offered that in the past but not so intensively and you've got this um very illustrious visitation this afternoon mm. uh, from baroness baron who is parliamentary under secretary of state for department of culture media and sport and apparently mm. she came to you or her department asked if they could come and visit you so that's a real feather in your cat. Well, yeah, they were actually suggested by the Architectural Heritage Fund to visit, I believe, Cromford Mill, which is beautiful in Matlock, and then to come to Backlit. So I was like really flabbergasted. And at times like that, where you you kind of think, wow, we must have really, we must really be doing some interesting things to be to be of interest to these types of people. You know, I think um, I've also looked at the work they do, and it's really quite impressive in terms of uh, women's rights and domestic violence and isolation and young people. So, I'm really curious to hear what they think of Backlit. I really am. Well, it's a fantastic endorsement of everything that you've achieved here, and just in terms of this, the wider kind of political uh, landscape, because of course we're facing these cuts in the arts at the moment and that just seems totally upside down totally wrong-headed and i wonder how that plays out in government whether they just don't realize what the arts are doing for communities and, and places like this and what what you are doing for communities yeah do you know i think there's a really strong focus at the moment on social prescribing and especially since the last year and i think our learning and community coordinator again i keep talking about gina but she's doing some amazing work and she's a social prescriber outside of her role at backlit which is part-time so she's bringing some really useful thinking around the importance of creativity and arts in a time where people are experiencing severe isolation and mental health issues and i do think that's understood perhaps this is why I'm talking about community because I think there is some misunderstandings about arts being somehow self-serving or self-indulgent. It's self-driven, but to me it, it can go to those areas, but I feel like to me I've always been quite wary because I, I'm always quite wary of things being nepotistic because then it just feels like the impact is quite minimal and, you know, I, I'm really concerned about cuts to funding and, you know, years ago they kind of, there's the kind of bizarre time we've been living in where there's like education as you've been stripped of arts that to me is so fundamentally worrying in the sense of like those progressions and journeys for people and then part of me says optimistically well perhaps this is where places like backlit can be that informal learning environment for people to feel welcome and to get involved and the other part of me is saying well actually no people do need to know that the, the jobs in the arts are in incredibly important to society and, and I think I thought maybe quite naively that over the last year the ways in which we were all 
in lockdowns that we were so grateful for creative minds that have developed such wonderful content for us to be taken to other places and go to other worlds. And I think perhaps I've seen coming back, actually, that's not as prevalent as I'd hoped. I think I felt like we would all go, oh, do you know what? Sorry, guys. You know, when the world seems to be crumbling around you or there's a real restructure happening, in my head, the pandemic just flattened so many things that we had to kind of think about the world we want to live in when it comes back. And I think too quickly we're jumping back into the old ways, which is so terrifying and sad. To me, I think I thought there'd be a lot more of a fresher perspective. So to me, you know, when I think about the arts and the case for the arts, um, like to me, it's just more obvious now than it was a year ago, but perhaps it isn't still. And I don't know why. I, I do have some thinking around that, but I also feel like there are young people in this area that perhaps are not going to be given the opportunities to explore their creative thinking because I also joke that my job is actually a problem solver I talk about curator director fundraiser program you know but a lot of what I do is problem solving so even if young people or in the education system the arts can be looked at a way of thinking about situations or the world at large differently and trying to find different connections or to work around things that's to me, really important. My career's only ever been in time of austerity. Like, you know, we launched back in 2008, the beginning of a recession. Like, so when people talk about funding cuts, I'm like, oh, not again. But the thing is, I don't really feel like I've ever been on the cusp of huge amounts of funding floating around. People talk about the golden years of funding and the arts and the arts council, but I wasn't involved in that. I feel like I've had to really fight for everything. So if that fight and that hustle is going to get stronger, then I've just got to get ready. But then also, I do think, well, I'm not sure I'm getting a bit old for this. <laughs> you know, I'm hitting 40 now and I'm like, oh my God, you know. Well, the visit, the visit is a huge endorsement of all that you're doing. But it's also an opportunity for you to kind of push back and, and, and ask her about, you know, set out the case or, or, or challenge her on these things because she must be aware of, the situation and uh, she needs to hear maybe that uh, it's not optional really it's vital to people's mental health well-being and sense of self mm. particularly with so many challenges in all other aspects of life we've received cultural recovery funding from the dcms and the arts council which was so crucial and a lot of our funding has been on adapting, but actually a lot of it's going towards digitising some of the work we do and fundamentally helping artists understand the benefits of that. Let's, let's not discount the fact that like face-to-face -face and physical and social are really important. But, you know, I feel like we've all been catapulted into a different realm the last year. So I am really grateful to receiving that funding because it's just really helping us adapt and become more sustainable, you know, and that, and that is really important right now. So... But I also know there are people that haven't been that lucky, that haven't had the funding and are really wondering what they're doing and where they're going and how they're going to survive this period. So we'll see. I'll update you. I'll let you know what happens. Yeah, but, um... do. I'll be, I'll, I'm, I'm, I'm already, I'm curious to know. Well, Matthew, thank you so much for this conversation. It's been absolutely fascinating to hear about all of the, your work going on at Backclear. And I think you're something of a saint to put this all together, keep the show on the road and to provide so many opportunities for artists and, and for creativity in general. So long may it continue and thank you very much. Oh, thank you. I'm a recovering Catholic, so you can't say stuff like that to me because I will 
build a statue of myself in the gallery of me oh, as St. Matthew. I, I, <laughs> I'm joking. I found you out. <laughs> thank okay, you so well, much. Yeah, thank you very much. Thanks for listening to this episode of Something to Do with Art. I hope you enjoyed the conversation. I'd love to hear your thoughts and feedback via social media. And check out the podcast notes for links and further information. That's it for this episode. Many thanks to the very wonderful Berwick Livingston for the music, Danielle Blyde for logo design, and to everyone who has taken part and helped me with this project. I hope to catch up with you again soon.